Uh, what I want to do this morning is we kind of jump into this. Again, next week we'll be getting back into our teaching series in the Gospel of John. Um, things will be back to normal again as far as service times and whatnot. Uh, we will have children's ministry whatnot available next week as well. So again, we'll be back to normal kind of warp and woof of, of life and whatnot uh, as a church. Um, but one of the things I really want to focus on today is just thinking about getting prepped into this new year. And with that, I think one of the things that came to my mind, as well as I'm sure it came to yours, is that this season of moving into the new year always uh, tends to anticipate kind of a recrafting of like, what do we want to expect or hope for or look for in the new year? What are new habits we want to cultivate? You know, it's one of the reasons why this time of year people more than ever make New Year's resolutions with, by the way, I don't want to like create a bummer. Most of those never end up being accomplished. Like you might go like two weeks or whatever. So I think there's like 90% of the people that make reservations or resolutions don't uh, end up living according to those. So again, not trying to bum me out, but it's just a simple reality. Um, but I think what I want to tap into is sort of the idea as to why we do this. Why do we do this? Why do we think about kind of a fresh new year, a fresh new start? It's because I think you and I were wired in a sense of acknowledging the fact that there's brokenness and ruin and death and things that are uh, various states of decay all around us. We feel that, we participate in that, we're affected by that, and therefore we get to this time of the year where we look forward to a new year, having new habits, new desires, new experiences, and so on and so forth. What I want to think about as we look at this, again, we'll be uh, studying and looking at Psalm 148. I'm going to show you a little Bible project video in two seconds here. Um, but what I want for us to think about is a phrase that I think will become a very... I, uh, idealized, I should say, within the video that we're going to watch. And the phrase I want for you to think about is a hope-filled imagination. So a hope-filled imagination. What does it look like to have a hope-filled imagination? Um, in the inverse of that, what does it look like to have a, a negative uh, imagination, right? One that's just anticipating the worst-case scenario, pessimism, whatnot. Uh, obviously, this time of year, we can begin to think about what we would love to be able to see as far as the future of our lives, of our society, our world around us, families, and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, we also find ourselves confronted by all sorts of broken, pessimistic-type responses. Uh, you don't need to spend more than five minutes on the news to just realize things are not well in our world. Uh, there's you know, always the threat of a new pandemic, a new variant, a new lockdown, a new, you know, uh, war on the horizon. All sorts of things are potential for destruction on our planet and within our lives. So how do we overcome that? And that's what I want for us to think about in terms of a hope-filled imagination. So in other words, the question that I want for us to really wrestle with is where do healing and wholeness and renewal ultimately come from? Where do healing, wholeness, and renewal ultimately come from? Think about that. Where will it come from? Inner self? United States? Democracy? Functioning democracy, let's say? Social justice movements? Reallocation of wealth? Universal health care? World Economic Forum? Klaus Schwab? Great Reset? Um... Renewable energy? What will actually create a world that will find itself in a cycle of healing, wholeness, and renewal? 
what will help and guarantee you as a human being live within a cycle of health, healing, wholeness, and renewal. And this is what I want first to think about. As we go to Psalm 148, one of the things I love about the Bible, you should as well, is that the Bible is filled with this constant ongoing theme of hope-filled imagination. In other words, what could possibly take place if God were God, if God were king, if God set up his kingdom on this planet, if God were to really take the reins of everything, if every human agent that has the ability to make a choice and say yes or no, to step into obedience in life or to step out of obedience in life into death and alienation and destruction, what would it really look like? The Bible's filled with all forms of hope-filled imagination. The prophets are constantly what we would even describe as a prophetic imagination. They're envisioning, thinking about, uh, projecting what would it look like if God were to really take his rightful place and humans responded rightly to that. What type of possibilities of healing and wholeness and renewal would take place upon this planet within your life should that be the place that takes some form of movement. And this is what the psalmists are always doing. Psalm 148 is no exception. And what I want for you to think about is we're going to watch this video. And then after that, we're actually going to all read Psalm 148. Again, it's one of the things that I've been enjoying doing is just kind of all of us reading longer portions of Scripture. I think there's something powerful about just letting Scripture do what Scripture does, which has this ability to reshape and reform our hearts. And there's power just in simply listening and observing without any necessary sermon or commentary. Those that can be helpful, but there's just something powerful about just letting Scripture be read and spoken and thus listen um, as observers of another person's uh, reinterpretation of what life could become if God were to take his rightful place. So with that one, Psalm 148, is this psalm that I want for us to think about. Again, I'm just going to let the Bible Project people share their little spin on Psalm 148, and then we will all read it together. But I want you to think about it with this image in your mind of Looking at the future with a hope-filled imagination, what could potentially happen upon this planet that could actually bring forth incredible goodness, healing, wholeness, and renewal? This is how the psalmist envisions it. So check it out. Praise the name of Yahweh, for he has lifted up the horn of his people. Okay, so what's the deal with this horn, and why is God lifting it up? Great question. These words come from the climactic conclusion of Psalm 148 in the Bible. Let's check it out. First, let's get our bearings. The Psalm Scroll is a large collection of poems in the Hebrew Bible. There are 150 poems, or what we call Psalms, which are arranged to tell a story. Psalms tell a story? Yeah, it begins with the promise of a coming king who will bring victory for Israel. And it continues to tell the story of how God rescues David from his affliction and raises him up as king. But then Israel falls to enemy nations and the people are left without a king and without a home. So they need a king greater than David. Right. And so the Psalms then explore how Israel renews their trust in Yahweh as their king and that he will bring about his kingdom through a future messianic king from the line of David. Great, the story of the Psalms. Now, the last five poems form the conclusion to the entire story, and they're all praise songs. And this is where we find Psalm 148, right in the middle of these final five poems. Psalm 148, like all these five poems, begins and ends in the same way. 
praise Yah. Praise Yah. That must be short for Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses. Right. And this line is usually translated praise the Lord, but in Hebrew it's hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sounds familiar, right? Now today when people sing the word hallelujah, they usually use it as a way to praise God. Hallelujah. But in Hebrew, hallelujah is not something you say to God. It's something you say to other people when you invite them to praise God. So hallelujah means, hey, you over there, you should praise the Lord. Exactly. Psalm 148 is a call for all the creatures in two realms to praise Yahweh, the realm of the sky and the realm of the land and everything that fills them. The sky and the land. That sounds like the opening line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the sky and the land. Exactly. This psalm is summoning the entire cosmos and everything in it to praise their creator. It begins with a call to the sky. Praise Yahweh from the skies. Praise him in the heights. And who is in the sky? Praise him all his messengers. That's the word often translated angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him the sun and the moon. Praise him stars of light. Praise him skies of skies and the waters that are above the skies. Notice how the outer lines describe the spaces of the sky realm. The skies above. And they surround the inhabitants of the sky in the middle. Ah, uh, yes, the messengers and hosts, sun and moon and stars. And then we're told why the skies should praise Yahweh. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. A decree he gave, and it will not pass. This is about the pathways of the stars, which don't change. Every night they dance the same dance, all by God's command. Now, after this, the second realm is called to praise Yahweh, everything below the skies. Praise Yahweh from the land. And we get a list of things on the land that, while terrifying, are ultimately under God's authority. Sea monsters and deep, fire and hail, snow and smoke, stormy wind doing his word. So wait. These dangerous chaos creatures are following God's command? Well, remember that in Genesis 1, the pre-creation state is depicted as a dark, stormy ocean. And as God creates light, he doesn't get rid of the darkness. Rather, he contains it and separates it from the light. In the same way, God doesn't eliminate the stormy ocean or the monsters in it, but he does confine them to the realm of the sea. In the Bible, chaos and disorder are limited and kept at bay by God's powerful word. And because God is so much greater, even they are summoned to praise him. Got it. Now the next things called to praise Yahweh are mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. But how does a tree praise God? Yeah, God designed trees to stand tall and grow, to reproduce and bear fruit. When creation, even a tree, fulfills its purpose, it's an act of praise and worship. Praise Yahweh, wild animals, and all cattle, creeping things and winged birds. We should recognize this list from Genesis chapter 1. And finally, kings of the land and all peoples, princes and all the judges of the land, young men and also young women, elders with children. In other words, every kind of human, from the powerful to the weak, old and young, from every nation, everyone on the land is called to praise. And just like there was a reason given for the sky praise, now we get a reason for why the land should praise Yahweh. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for exalted is his name alone, his majesty above the land and the skies. He has lifted up the horn of his people, the praise of all his loyal ones, of Israel, a people near to him. So we finally got here, the horn lifted up by God. What is this all about? This is an image of a bull lifting up its horns after winning a battle. The raised horn is a common biblical symbol of victory, especially of being rescued from oppression. Now, in this psalm, notice whose horn is being exalted. 
the people of Israel. But what victory is God bringing about for them? This is where we need to connect Psalm 148 to the larger biblical story. It begins in Genesis with God giving royal power to all humanity. But humans mess that all up. So God chooses one family, the Israelites, and promises that he'll rescue all humanity through them. But the rest of the Torah and the prophets show Israel surrounded by enemies on the outside and on the inside. They're corrupted by injustice and violence themselves. And so to bring victory to the whole world, God promises to first bring victory for them. To lift up their horn. Right. And remember, the Psalms tell the story of God's promise to raise up a king who will bring victory to Israel and rescue the world. And that's a great reason for praise. It is. Since all creation is going to be rescued by this king, it only makes sense that the land and the skies and everything in them are summoned to praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. So what I want to do is I want to read the entire psalm together. Um, but I want you to have this image in your mind and this picture that this is the psalmist's uh, hope-filled imagination as to what all things could potentially be. He, the psalmist envisions a world under its rightful rulership, under Yahweh God, in which God is good over all things. God has rightly taken his place. All of creation has rightly taken its place. And it's, it's colorful. It's beautiful to, to imagine a tree waving its hands, praising, worshiping God. It's, just, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful image. In fact, I wouldn't go so far as to say what's, this is one of the things I love about the Bible not only is the Bible a summons to follow the way of God, but also it's a continual reimagination of what would look, what the world would look like. I mean, think about that. Can you think of any other context in our world that actually not only imagines what the world could look like in its proper state of healing, but also empowers you to become the type of person that could live in that? This is what makes the Bible so unique, is it casts a vision that's actually viable and possible, not by ourselves, not by our own utopian desires and hopes, but by the power of God in us rightfully submitting ourselves to Yahweh God. So with that, how about we all stand? I'm going to read Psalm 148. I will have the entire thing on the screen. In fact, if you'd like, you can go ahead and follow on that. If you do have a Bible, you're more than welcome to read along. It's going to be out of uh, the ESV. So the way that we will do this is I will just get it started, and then we will all harmonize our voices together. You guys, you guys okay with that? It's a little bit lengthy, so I, I realize um, it's about 14 verses. Uh, anytime you see one that has like an exclamation mark at the end, you guys, you guys remember last week? If you guys were here last week, what are you supposed to do? It's actually like energetically like reimagine, like let's, let's, let's give it the proper space that it's due. So how about this? We'll start. All right, ready? Number one. All right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him from the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens. And you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the Lord. For he commanded them and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great creatures, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all the hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, 
creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and women. Praise the name of the Lord. His majesty is above heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for his sins and the people of Israel who are near him. Praise the Lord. Good job, guys. Grab a seat. This is the word of the Lord. So the psalmist imagines a future where all creation, as the video pointed out, all that which is seen, all that which is unseen, if you want to think of it this way, all that which is in heaven, all that which is on earth, all that which is celestial, you know, in the stars or above, and all that which is terrestrial, that is, of the earth. But he also imagines things that are below the earth, in the oceans, all creation, Praising God. That's what he imagines. It's what he envisions. And we, we know that this is a viable vision because we know that the entirety of the Bible actually takes us on this journey to where all creation, you can, you can read this in the book of Revelation, where you begin to realize like all things are headed in this direction. We're all things. We, we do not yet see all earth under the submission of King Jesus today. It's the reason why, by the way, we have so much brokenness. And pain in our world, so much difficulty and hardship and anger and violence and rage and wars and pandemics and all the things that we see happening and unfolding in our world and injustice and idolatry and all of these things taking place is because we do not yet see the world in that place. But it's headed in there. This is what we consistently see as the message of the Bible. What I want to do is I want for us to think about as we are stepping into 2023 and just kind of asking ourselves a question like, who do we want to become? What type of people really ultimately do you want to become? What type of a person? What type of a character? What, who do you want to be known for? What type of life? Again, this is questions that are, that are pretty common in our world today, even right now, every time this season of the year comes around where people are making, again, New Year's resolutions to lose 10 pounds, to get more physically fit, to be able to run a marathon, to start a business, uh, to learn a new language, whatever. We have all of these hopes, dreams, and anticipations. Um, and and I, I want to tap into that a little bit and just think about what really, at the end of the day, what type of a character or a person do you really want to become? And what's going to get you there? What I would suggest to you is that the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, the entire story of the Bible, is inviting you, just like the psalmist is, summoning you and I, along with all creation, all that which is in the stars and the skies, all that which is on the earth and beneath the earth, summoning all to worship and praise God. So I want to think about it in this light, that we tend to think, especially in evangelical circles, that or in modern Western Christian circles, we tend to think of worship and praise as being something that's just exclusively done by way of singing a song before a sermon gets started, and that's about that. And I would suggest to you that that's, that's unfortunate, that has a tendency to limit it down, as much as we love to be able to do that. that that's not what the invitation from the psalmist is. It, it can't be because trees don't like operate that way, nor do sea lions and other types of creatures he describes. They're not necessarily singing. So what, what is he inviting all of us to do? And I, I think this is really more so it's about a posture of our life that acknowledges and recognizes God 
for his state of who he is, his role in the universe, and what he's inviting us to do in terms of submitting ourselves underneath the lordship of King Jesus, to acknowledge that he is God over all things. That's really what it looks like to worship God, to orient our lives, the sum total of our lives, not just a worship service, not just a gathering on a Sunday morning, not just a Bible study that we go to, or not just a daily reading of scripture, but the entirety of our lives, to think about all that we are, how we feel, how we think, how we think about our money, how we think about our lives, our livelihood, our marriages, our relationships, our sexuality, our money. Everything is invited to be brought under the headship, the lordship of the creator. And to ask this bigger question, if you are God and if you are a creator over all things, now what does it mean for me as a created agent to synchronize my life underneath your headship? That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. Nothing short of that, nothing less of that, nothing outside of that will actually fit. You could be a cultural Christian, meaning you can just say, I am a Christian and I go to church, and, but, but live a life that is really under the headship and authority of your own self, of, of your own governance. That's, that's not what the Bible thinks about in terms of Christianity. And for some of us, we may need to pause and just think, am, am, am I merely a cultural Christian, meaning have I really have had my association with Christianity more identified in terms of just certain ideologies and thoughts that are kind of biblical, but really at the end of the day, I'm the Lord over my life. I'm the master over everything that I do. The invitation or the summons of the Bible and the psalmist right here is to orient the sum total of our lives under the headship of Jesus to worship, to praise, let everything that is in us praise the Lord. That's what he's inviting us to do. So what I want to do is I want to think about just four specific things. There's a lot that we can unpack here. There's a lot that we can spend time thinking about, but keeping time kind of short and just focus. I want to think about four different reasons why uh, worshiping God or praising God really is something that we are invited into and why really at the end of the day it makes a whole lot of sense. Number one is, first of all, God is worthy. This is the first thing. God is worthy. Worthy. We know this very clearly. In fact, if you want a passage, just look at Psalm 148, verses 13 and 14. Um, if we can go, yeah, here we go. Check this out. Psalm 148, verses 13 and 14. There are occasions throughout this psalm that he actually pauses and says, praise God because, and then he goes on and he begins to give an understanding or a reason why God is worthy. Then he says, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the heaven and the earth. Again, if you were to think of it this way, whose name in our culture is ultimately exalted? And I think of a lot of names that are exalted. I mean, we have a whole industry of, of idols, right? American Idol, we've got influencers, we've got people that their names are exalted. It just simply means lifted up, exalted. We, we're constantly creating and looking for the next influencer, the next influential person that will come in and basically uh, not only suspend our having to interact with the brokenness of this world, but in some cases even to like give us their world-class vision on how to live our lives, kind of like a life coach. But at the end of the day, all of these people, all of these other influencers, all of these other agents, at some point, they have a limited shelf life, and their voice will fade. But here's what he's saying. God's name alone is exalted, which, mind you, this was written almost 3,000 years ago, and it hasn't changed. It's still the same ongoing storyline from the very beginning when this was originally penned. His majesty is above the earth. Uh, his, he has raised a horn for his people. The point that I would make first and foremost is that God is worthy. That's why we worship and praise God. The second reason is that it is good. 
It just, it leads us into a path of goodness. So let me just put it this way. If God truly is God, and if you and I as human beings or human agents are created in the image of God, meaning we are not gods, we bear God's image, that means that you and I have limitations. That means that that message I just said right there actually runs counter to every message that we keep hearing constantly dictated towards us in the culture at large, which is you can do anything that you set your mind to. Really? Anything? As much as we want to believe this, because it sounds great, it's, it's not true. We cannot do anything that we set our mind to. There's a lot of things. And honestly, there's freedom in this, is what I want to con- communicate. There's freedom in being able to accept certain limitations that you and I have. Because the opposite is that what we do is we believe this myth that I can do anything I want. I can do anything I fix my heart mind to. Now, again, I'm not saying this in any way, shape, or form to uh, take away your desires to reach for something great and do great things. I think there, there is a balance to this to just recognize you, all of us have incredible potential. So I want to speak to that type of you know, sense. All of you as human beings have incredible abilities. All of you. So there are certain things in your God-given talent system and realm that you can maximize and tap into. And some of you have not even come close to even scratching the surface of your potential. Keep digging in. Keep giving that gift that God has given you back to God. God will use it and maximize it and grow it and cultivate it and develop it. So there you go. But the last thing I want to say with regard to there are also limits that you and I have. And the more capable, the more able we are to acknowledge the fact there are certain limits that we will never be able to tap into, that frees us to be able to say, ah, God is God, and I'm a human being that has certain incredible giftings and abilities that I'm going to tap into and maximize as best as I can. But at the end of the day, I can't do everything. God alone does everything. So in those deficiencies that I have, I will praise Yah. In those areas that I'm able to do certain amazing things and uh, use certain giftings that I, I have that God has allowed me to be able to tap into, I will praise God because he gave these things to you. At the end of the day, it's his summons, just like the psalmist does, to say, let's praise God in all that we do. So number one, God is worthy. Number two reason is because it ultimately is good. It rightly orders creation and human beings all under the headship of God. Thirdly, it shapes us. Worship shapes us. In fact, I would put it this way. Every single one of us are worshiping agents. So some of you might be like, well, I'm kind of not really religious. I don't really believe in God. All of us as human beings, we worship something. Worship worship just simply means worthy, uh, proclaiming worth or value upon something, and then orienting our lives around it. In fact, one of the reasons why this is so significant, and when I use the phrase, it shapes us, Psalm 115 kind of elaborates a little bit further on this, and it describes ultimately what ends up happening. We become like that which we worship. We get shaped by that which we worship. Psalm, like I said, 115 kind of goes a little bit deeper in that. I want to read a particular little commentary or statement. Some of you guys have heard me say this before, but there was a, a writer, a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. He was not a Christian. He was an exceptionally gifted writer, and he had written something about this, and some of you have probably heard this. If not, I want to just read it to you. He actually made these observations about human beings. Again, not as a Christian, but just as a human being, that acknowledging other human beings. He says this, there's no such thing as not Worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you and I get is what we worship. 
If you worship money and things, you will never feel as if you have enough. If you worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, ever, uh, you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear of losing it. If you worship your intellect or being seen as smart or intelligent, you will end up feeling stupid or fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all of these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are literally the default settings of our lives. Every one of us worships. The question is, what are you wired or prone to valuing and lifting up or elevating as something that you devote your energy and your heart and your emotions to? That's what we worship. The summons of the psalmist is to worship Yahweh because he alone is great. He alone is good. Then lastly, we see that ultimately why we worship is because everything is headed towards this realm. Everything in all creation. Uh, We've heard this phrase get thrown around a lot over the past several years, being on the right side of history. Being on the right side of history. And oftentimes it's used in a derogatory term, like, you're not living on the right side of history. Don't you know that my ideological view of whatever is going to be proven as the right way, yours isn't, you horrible human being. That's kind of oftentimes the way it gets utilized. But I, I, I do think that there's value to saying, let's Make sure that we live on the right side of history. But the real question is, what what is the right side of history? And where is everything headed? Where is our world going? What is God up to in this world? At the end of the day, will evil and death and brokenness and empire and greediness and injustice and idolatry, will it ultimately be the thing that wins the day? Will we always be just an endless victim to whatever type of powerful agency or empire that's out there? Will we always have to somehow just figure out how to eke along a measly reality in this world? Or is there hope beyond all of this? And so what I want to suggest to you is that the psalmist is envisioning a world where everything will rightly take its place under the headship of Jesus. Everything is headed to this future state where all things will be rightly ordered. And I want to conclude on this. And the reason why we know this, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, for a Christian, a hope-filled imagination does not begin with you envisioning what your life will look like. Our culture is hyper-individualistic, and everything about it is all focused upon ourselves. Christianity is not focused upon ourselves. It includes us as human beings, made in the image of God, but it's not focused on ourselves. Christianity is ultimately focused on God. And the question is, is what is God doing? What has God invited me into? And how do I participate? How do I partake? How do I respond? How do I say yes? For a Christian, the hope-filled imagination does not begin with any of us. It ultimately begins by looking back to the story of Jesus and what Jesus had did. And the night before Jesus died, we see one of the most beautiful portrayals of what Jesus says. You want to know what the future will look like? It will look like a table. We're all are invited. Not everyone's going to come, but all who will come will be welcomed. All who come will be given a space at this table. What we would describe it as everyone who desires, who will, everyone is invited to come home to find a place. And the night before he dies, 
he sits around a table with his disciples, and he's celebrating what's commonly known as the Passover meal. And I want to finish basically our very last act of the year, as well as really kind of the very first act of our year moving into brand new year, is celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And I think it's something that would be important for us because it defines us in terms of who we are, type of people we want to become, but also it shapes us because really, if we allow what is happening here at the Lord's table to do its proper effect upon us, it will shape us into the type of people that become like Jesus, welcoming, loving, inviting, that are able to not only acknowledge the pervasiveness of sin and the brokenness of sin and the badness of sin, but also the solution to sin, that Jesus has come to do something about that. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They're going to distribute um, the little cup uh, to you guys. If you would like to partake, you're more than welcome. Just go ahead and grab one of these things. Hold on to it. We'll all partake together. If you don't want to partake, that's totally fine as well. Uh, really, at the end of the day, this is kind of like an invitation for those that are followers of Jesus to basically renew their devotion to what God has called us into. And that's what we will recognize. So the Lord's Supper, really, at the end of the day, is all about uniting us to these themes of restoration, redemption, renewal. Uh, The Lord's Supper frees us from these cycles of guilt, shame, and regret because it connects us to all of that power that God has put forth in and through Jesus. And ultimately, it has the ability to form us as people who embody love and forgiveness and goodness. So if you really want to think of it this way, the best thing that you and I can do starting 2023, is to engage in the practice of the Lord's Supper. Remembering who we are in the presence of God, what we've been welcomed to, how he's transformed us, how he invites us to live as different people in this world, proclaiming the life of God's goodness in this world. Part of the reasons why you and I as human beings, we partake the the communion is a way of reminding ourselves we need God's power. It's not in us to save ourselves. It's not part of our own subjective thinking or intellect or abilities or utopian vision of life to somehow save ourselves. We can't do this. We've tried this over and over and over again. And yet, as human beings, we continue the project of trying something new, hoping that it will work. But it always just cycles out at some point or it gets overtaken by some new fresh leader that has the tendency to take things off track and derail it in some new form of scandal. But what we see the kingdom of God is all about is God inviting us in in spite of how broken we are, in spite of how messed up we are, and he becomes, as the psalmist says, the horn, the horn of our salvation, the one who triumphs for us, the one who loves us, the one who's for us. So what we do as we partake of the communion, part of this process is a time of self-examination where we take a look at our lives and consider, in spite of how broken we are, in spite of how messed up we are, in spite of how awkward we feel as followers of Jesus or uh, unrighteous we are, whatever, all of these things are part of the human experience that we get to bring to Jesus afresh and say, Lord, this is who we are. Limitations, brokenness, sinful proclivities, and all. And I thank you that you received me. And part of this process involves confession of our sin. So, What I want to do right now is we have on the screen a little prayer of confession that we will say this together. And uh, 
and then we'll just pause for a moment to confess our sins. So let's say this. Almighty God, we have sinned against you and one another in thought, word, and deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. Therefore, we confess our sin to you. And part of the process that Christians have always done in this time is just to pause and reflect upon areas that we just need to bring before God. What I love about this is that you will never find in any other context an opportunity to clear the slate, to confess your sin, to cast away those proclivities that are part of our lives. Not to be mocked or shamed or attacked or be viewed as deplorable, but to be absolved. Forgiven. Welcomed. Received. So take a moment in the quietness and just confess before Jesus those sins that you need. Knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, uh, I have the great joy in just declaring to you, if you've confessed your sin, Jesus has forgiven you. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. And this is good news. And we have this assurance because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as it was even said during the time of worship, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Welcome to walking into a brand new world of 2023 of what could potentially be a life where God receives rightful praise and worship and honor that's due to his name, where God could break forth and use you as an agent of wholeness and healing in this world. So in conclusion, what I want to do right now is we will partake the cup. But before we do, I want for us just to think about this. I love this image, and we don't always have a piece of bread up here to look at. But Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it. That's what I'm doing here right now. Is we, he breaks it. But what we see with regard to this bread, I love as sort of an object lesson, is this is once a whole loaf. That was then broken. And the only way for you and I, if we were to all eat this, which we're not, because you don't want to eat something that my hands have been on, uh, the way that, only way this can be eaten is if it were to be broken, and then distributed, and then you partake. This is the picture that Jesus says. My life has been given to you so that as you partake of me, you will live. What precipitates that is Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus' blood being shed for us. This is his way of saying, in order for me to do what I need to do for you, I must bear in my body the consequences, the brokenness of sin. And let sin and other sinful people's actions upon me do to me what it's always doing to every one of you. In other words, what Jesus does is he experiences the depth of brokenness that you and I are always experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And his way of saying, I'm going to give you life that overcomes that and create a future and hope for you, a place of welcome at my table. No matter who you are, I will never cast you out. Confess your sin to me. And we enter into this by way of repentance, meaning we just confess our sin, and then faith, trusting Jesus to do what Jesus alone can do.